This view of the coming of Jesus, the soon coming of Jesus, the culminating hope of all faith found in God's Word, is not just the hope of the book of Revelation and of Scripture itself, but also the book of Daniel as we've been studying through. There's a consistent eye towards the future, and particularly the very end of future, where Jesus will set up his kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. If you've been with us for multiple nights, you've probably heard the following sequence before. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, little horn, judgment scene, second coming. How many of you, show of hands, is that now familiar to you? Oh, praise the Lord. If it's not familiar to you yet, you've got some listening to do on the CDs. Let me tell you something, okay? But we saw in Daniel chapter 2 that this sequence of four empires followed by the coming of Christ was the focus of Daniel chapter 2. And if you recall, it was the vision that Nebuchadnezzar was given of the great statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and on and on down to the body. The same sequence was seen again in Daniel chapter 7, This time, instead of a single body with different body segments, he saw a sequence of four beasts, but each one representing kingdoms, yes? And then we saw in Daniel chapter 8, further repetition of this same sequence. Now, why do we bring that up so often? Well, first of all, as we've mentioned, the book of Daniel is the corresponding book of Scripture to the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation fit together like hand and glove. In fact, there's many places where the book of Daniel goes right up to a point and the book of Revelation will take the baton and go from there. Tonight, we're going to see one of those examples. We go over the sequence so that you'll have the history that leads up to the very end-time events just talked about in the book of Revelation. But before we begin tonight's study, we, of course, need to begin with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for such a beautiful day. Thank you so much that you've given us life at all and that we can spend these moments together here tonight. But even more than the Christian fellowship that we enjoy and the company that we keep here, Lord, we ask to commune with the Holy Spirit this evening. Send your Spirit to us, not just in a general sense, but very specifically, Lord, to each person here. Help us to hear clearly and see well. Help us to think the thoughts that you want us to think, and Lord, help our hearts to be receptive to your truth as you bring it home to us tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, this time to chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, of course, the book of Revelation, written by the apostle John on the island of Patmos. And he is given a vision. And we read in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 13, Then I stood on the sand of the what? Sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now pause right here. He's standing looking out over the waters of a great sea. And he sees a beast rising from the sea. Does this sound like anything we've seen before? Yes, Daniel chapter 7. If you recall, he was standing looking out over the great sea, and the four winds of heaven were churning up the sea, and out come a sequence of four beasts. But Daniel here, I mean, John here, does not see a sequence of four beasts. How many beasts does he see? One. Okay, keep this in mind. 
Again, verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Now let me ask you a question. Has Daniel ever seen a beast with seven heads? No. And ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, there are some striking similarities to Daniel's visionary experience, to what John sees here, but there are some clear contrasts as well. Again, both of them are standing on the beach looking out over the sea. Both of them see beasts, except John only sees the one beast where Daniel sees four. I'm sorry, the other way. Daniel sees four and John sees one. And the number of the heads is not quite, something's a little off, but it's very similar. But then we look at the clue in verse 2. What is this one beast comprised of? Notice it says, The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. So it's hard to say that this is a single-looking beast when it's a compilation of several different beasts put together. Now what's fascinating is what beasts comprise this singular beast. Notice it's a nondescript beast made up of all different parts of other beasts. But his body was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear, and his mouth was like a lion. Have we seen nondescript beast and leopard, bear, and lion before? Yes. If you recall in Daniel chapter 7, in fact, put your finger right here in Revelation 13 and let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Daniel chapter 7 We'll notice the similarities. Notice what Scripture records. The prophet Daniel says about his own vision experience in Daniel chapter 7 and compare that with what John sees in Revelation 13. Look at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great what? Sea. Okay? And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And then he walks through the sequence. The first, in verse 4, was like a lion, would hatch eagle's wings and other attributes. Now look at verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. Verse 6, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard. And then in verse 7, after this in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. So he sees four beasts that go in order, lion, bear, leopard, then just this undescribed terrible beast. In fact, theologians often call it the terrible beast. (laughs) But notice the sequence. Lion, bear, leopard, terrible beast. Now, why are they in this order? 
Well, because they represent a sequence of kingdoms that will come on the earth, yes? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. We've gone through this over and over and over. Daniel saw this in Daniel chapter 2, and when he sees this again in chapter 7, it's very clear. And just in case it's not, the angel interpreter tells him, these four beasts are four kingdoms that shall arise on the earth. Now, from Daniel's perspective, they go that way because he's living in the time of which empire? Babylon. He receives his vision while he's living in the time of the lion, if you will. Babylon. And the next thing that comes up is Medo-Persia, the bear, then Greece, the leopard, and then after that, Rome, the terrible beast. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. In that order, in that direction. So what Daniel is seeing here, of course, in picture language, is just history unfolding, or in fact, the future as it will unfold from his perspective. Is that clear? Okay. So he's looking down the chain of history, Babylon he's in, then Medo-Persia, Greece, and way down there is Rome, and all the things at the end of Rome are way, way, way far away. Now let me ask you a question. Was the Apostle John, when he was on the island of Patmos, Was he still inside the empire of Babylon? No. Was he writing during the time of the Greeks? No. I mean the Medes and Persians. No, not the Greeks, nor the... He was in the time of Rome. So when he is shown this sea, he doesn't see four beasts which are to come. He sees one beast. Now let's review what we've learned so far, also in Daniel chapter 7. By the way, if, if I said I saw someone at the mall today, I saw a man at the mall, you know what my wife would never ask me? Oh, how many heads did he have? Because the default position for any animal, <laughs> person included, is that they have one head. Now if I said You'll never believe it, sweetie. I saw a guy with three heads. That's remarkable. And we'd have a conversation about it. And she wouldn't believe me. But when the Bible talks about a beast, for instance, it says, I saw a lion. It does not tell us how many heads it has. What's the assumption? It only has one. You don't have to tell me how many heads it has because a lion typically has one. You do have to mention it when it has more than one because that's abnormal, yes? Now think about this. There were four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. The first one was a lion with how many heads? One. The next one was a bear with how many heads? One. The next one was a leopard with how many heads? Four. And the next one was this nondescript beast. How many heads? One. So we have one. And one, and four, and one. You don't have to be a math major to come up with four plus one, two, three is seven, right? So, for instance, if all of these beasts were to be combined into one, it would have the attributes of a lion, a bear, a leopard, and look like this terrible beast thing, but, in, but it would have seven heads. Now, if you were to add up all the horns that were described in this sequence, only one beast had horns. It was the last one, Rome, and it divided into 
10, right? So you'd, this is what we see in John's vision. Go back to Revelation chapter 13. Again, look at verse 1 and compare. And basically what you see is chapter 13, this beast from the sea that John has shown is merely a conglomeration of all the beasts that Daniel has shown to come in the future. But John is living in the time when that beast is all one power, a culmination of all of them. Look at this, chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, if we were to go even farther, that fourth beast of Rome after it divides into the ten horns, which are each little kingdoms inside of the empire, right? Then there was a little horn that would rise up speaking pompous words or blasphemous words, right? This is the context from which John is writing. Now, to make this even more clear, I think this is fascinating. I find this phenomenal. You may not think it's great, but I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. Watch this now. After it talks about this beast that John sees rising from the sea, it has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Watch this now. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. So he sees the beast, and it looked like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. It lists off all the exact same animals as comprising this one beast, But if you notice something, it lists them in reverse order. This terrible beast, which was like a leopard, had parts like a bear and a mouth like a lion. It's the exact even same sequence that Daniel saw just in reverse. Why would it be in reverse? Because he's looking back. So what Daniel was shown as the future, John sees now as comprising the past. And what Daniel saw as this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, John simply says, look, it all happened. And here we are. It's fascinating that the Bible is that accurate. Exactly where Daniel leaves off, John picks up. God gives the same vision to two different people living at different times and shows them the same thing, but from their own perspective in the stream of history. Does that make sense? Very cool. Now, Let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks. Daniel and John are both watching beasts rise from the what? Sea. Now, I keep repeating this sea. Well, I don't keep repeating it. The Bible keeps repeating it. If only the Bible would tell us what waters and seas represent, that could very much help us decode Revelation's prophetic mysteries. But handily enough, the book of Revelation tells us what the waters or the seas are that these beasts rise from. It's in Revelation chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. I'm sorry, verse 15, not 1 through 3. Let's go to verse 15. Revelation chapter 17. You can just scratch that in your notes. Sorry about the typo. Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you see, and in verse 17 talks about this harlot or this adulterous woman, where the harlot sits are what? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. 
Apparently, in Bible prophecy, the waters or the seas out of which beasts arise and out of all these figures come from is a representation of peoples and nations and languages and tongues and ethnic groups. It's a, it's a big mixing of people. Right? Humanity, it's a sea of humanity from which these beasts arise. Now, that's going to be important because there are actually two beasts in Revelation chapter 13. The first one is the beast from the sea, and the second one is the beast from the land, or the beast from the earth. Okay, Now that's going to be important in just a minute, but I want to stick that in your mind right now. Basically, our presentation tonight is looking at Revelation 13 and the two beasts that we see there. The first comes out of the sea, which is multitudes, nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples, languages, humanity. And the other one comes out of the land, which must be whatever the opposite of that, in a sparsely populated, not densely covered area. Okay? Now, turning our attention back to Revelation 13. Our fill-in-the-blank, John and Daniel are both watching beasts rise from the sea. And then we notice John sees one beast comprised of various parts of Daniel's four beasts. I want to make sure we all see that clearly. John sees one beast comprised of various parts of Daniel's four beasts. And there we have our little chart that tells us the beast of Daniel 7 and all the heads and the horns and all the attributes. And then you, Revelation 13, you have a single beast with a leopard's body, a bear's feet, a lion's mouth with ten horns and seven heads. It's interesting. But now, what does this beast do? Well, exactly what, in Revelation 13, this beast does exactly what you would expect the blasphemous power from Daniel 7 to do. Because I don't want to give away the farm, but they're talking about the exact same thing. Notice in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was what? Healed. So, This beast, this blasphemous power that John sees as the culmination of the same sequence of events that Daniel had seen, receives a deadly wound, but it revives from that wound. And notice what happens. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, if you recall in our sequence of events from Daniel, in our sequence of events from Daniel, From Daniel chapter 2, there's no religious power mentioned at all. It's just political, 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 political. Jesus comes. Daniel chapter 7 introduces us to this little horn power, but it would be destroyed without human hands because there would be the judgment scene go on, right? It would receive a blow. Daniel chapter 8 gives us more information about that judgment scene, and Daniel chapter 9 tells us when the beginning of that judgment scene will happen, right? But it all goes down to this little horn powers, which we see in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, who persecute the people of God, who blaspheme the Most High, who try to change the times and laws of God. His power would be ended by some strike that God would do. But now we pick up the story in Revelation chapter 13. It takes us all the way to the point where, yes, there would be this power, this blasphemous power, which would harm God's people, but it would receive a deadly wound but then the deadly wound would be healed. It's picking up right where Daniel leaves off and tells us now that this deadly wound would be healed. And what is the world's response to the healing of this deadly wound? And all the world marveled and followed the beast. 
So they worshipped whom? The dragon. Well, I thought they were following the beast. But who does the beast work for? The dragon, right? Remember, who gave him his power? Look at verse 2 again. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So, of course, verse 4, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? I mean, this, this power has no army, it has no standing air force or military of any kind. It can receive a deadly wound, and all of a sudden it just keeps coming back. Who can fight against this thing? This beast. And look at verse 5. Tell me this doesn't sound exactly like what we saw in Daniel 7. And he was given a what? Mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and was given authority to continue for... 42 months. Of course, we already understand in Bible prophecy, a prophetic day equals a literal year. So 42 months, or 42 times 30, right? Month with 30 days equals 1,260 days. The most often repeated time prophecy in the Bible, it here shows up, Revelation chapter 13, applied to the exact same power that was shown in Daniel chapter 7 as reigning for 1,260 years. We're talking about the identical thing. Watch this now. Again, verse 5, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Is this merely a political, military power, or is this a spiritual power? Spiritual. That's his attack. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The very thing Daniel was shown. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Now, if it stopped right there, that would be some of the most discouraging scripture there is. He revives, the whole world wanders, and worships him, the end. But look, it doesn't end with a period. It goes to a comma and said, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So apparently there will be two camps. You're either in all the world who's wandering after the beast, or you're faithful to the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Very clearly we have Jesus Christ and loyalty to him versus the Antichrist, and loyalty him. False worship to the Antichrist or true worship to Jesus Christ. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But it says here, um, in Revelation chapter 13, it continues, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So apparently during this time, the 1,260 years, the saints are supposed to be patient and simply endure. But there's a distinction. Those who worship God and those who worship Satan. The dragon, the devil or Satan. Now, let's turn our study guides over to the back side now. If you notice, the title of our study guide tonight is The Antichrist, what's that word? Accomplice. What is an accomplice? Someone who helps what? (laughs) 
accomplish what they're trying to do, right? Typically, you think of this in crime, right? The guy who drives the car from, for the guy who steals the, from the bank, you know, right? So an accomplice to the crime. You're not necessarily the one doing it, but you're propping up the guy who's doing it, right? That's what an accomplice is. And you'll notice that throughout history that this little horn power, this antichrist power, has no, like we talked about, a military, has no political ground, has no uh, nation to speak of per se, that it has any way to enforce its laws. It always rides on the back of something else. It always does something else. Something else gives it its power. And now in Revelation chapter 13, you see this occur. Now, if you recall, before we get into the beast from, this, from the earth, that you had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome divides into ten. The little horn comes up. The little horn is given that power to rule in 538 A.D., The deadly wound occurs in 1798 A.D., exactly 1,260 years later, which puts us in the late 1700s, about the year 1800, right, in history. Now, apparently, after he receives the deadly wound, Bible prophecy says that this little horn power would revive and become a player on the world stage once again. Apparently to such an extent that Someday all the world will wander after the beast and worship it instead of worshiping the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So we see a revived Antichrist power, a revived little horn. But as we've seen all throughout history, this little horn power never does things of its own or through its own ability, through its own resources. It always has an accomplice. This church always uses the power of the state to accomplish its ends. Okay? The church always uses the power of the state. And handily enough, right here in the time of this revived papacy, you see foretold in Bible prophecy another beast that will be the accomplice to the Antichrist, the beast from the earth. Notice this now. Revelation chapter 13 continues, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the what? Earth. And again, if waters or seas represent peoples and nations and tribes and tongues and all humanity, then this must be a place opposite of that, a geographic location that is not swimming and teeming with people. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a what? lamb and spoke like a dragon now here's what's fascinating another fascinating thing if i'm not mistaken if my math is right someone can look it up and double check but i'm pretty sure that the word lamb is used in the book of revelation more times than any other book 29 times if i'm not mistaken throughout the book of revelation you see reference to the lamb The lamb. You remember Revelation chapter 5? He comes into heaven looking like a lamb having been slain, right? Then over and over, there's the song of Moses and the lamb that's referred to. It's the lamb. And every single time that the word lamb is used in the book of Revelation, it's a reference to whom? Jesus Christ. Because the whole book is supposed to be a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And here John sees a beast coming up out of the earth, not out of the sea. Now, every other beast that has come along has come out of the sea, yes? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they're all coming from the same territory, except for this one. comes out of a whole new place. About the end of the time of the 1,260 years, the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he sees another beast rising. But this one doesn't have iron teeth and it doesn't have... In fact, its characteristics, or at least the first one mentioned, it has two horns like a what? Lamb. If it's got anything like a lamb, it must have something Christ-like. This is innocent, this is pure, this is godly, this is Christian, in fact. But it speaks like a what? Dragon. Now this is a very interesting juxtaposition. In one beast, you have something Christ-like matched with something satanic. What an interesting beast. Well, we continue. What does he do? Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of whom? The first beast in his presence. So does this beast operate at the same time as the beast from the sea? Yes, because it's doing all this through his authority in his presence. And causes, what does this job of this earth beast and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to do what? Worship whom? The first beast. Is this second beast, this beast from the earth, trying to garner worship for itself? No. Its job is to prop up the first beast and to guide all people to worship it. Are we with me so far? Watch what the scripture says here. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now let's look at our time sequence here. If the deadly wound occurred in 1798, this next beast would have to arise about that time from a different geographic location and cause the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, past tense. So this is occurring after the deadly wound, yes? Okay. So it gives us a pretty narrow little time frame. It goes on to say, well, let's, in fact, before we go on, let's go back to our, I, I don't want to miss something important here. Notice it says it had two horns, And horns in Bible prophecy always represent kings or states of a kingdom, right? So, for instance, Rome was still the beast, but it had ten horns. There's a phase of divided Rome. And here this beast has ten horns. The the first beast has ten horns, the one from the sea. But the beast from the earth has two horns. And what are those two horns like? They're like a lamb. They're like Christ. Is it possible to have two 
side-by-side kingdoms operating at the same time and still be one nation? Yes. Let me demonstrate this. Christ himself demonstrates this. Let's go to our fill-in-the-blank here. Just to make sure we're all caught up here. In Revelation, a dragon always represents whom? Satan, or the devil. Now, lamb is used, I believe it's 29 times, depending on what translation you use, 29 times in the book of Revelation, and always refers to whom? Jesus. Now let's move to the next one. In prophecy, horns represent a single power's various kingdoms. We, we understand this. By the way, in the United States of America, you have 50 states, but we're one nation, right? In a marriage, you have two spouses, but, but biblically, they're one flesh. Right? This is not a contrasting idea. This, is, this makes sense. And in prophecy, again, you have the ten horns, but it's still Rome. Now, apparently, this last beast is still one beast, but it has two kingdoms operating simultaneously in this beast. Yes? Okay. Did you recognize, do you realize that Christ recognized two concurrent yet separate kingdoms during his time. Let me show you something interesting. Book of Mark. Mark chapter 12. We'll start with verse 13. Mark chapter 12. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his word. By the way, most of the time people talk to Jesus. If they were from the religious world, they were not friendly. They're out to try to catch him, to test him, to trap him. And here's another occasion. They're trying to trip him up. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. By the way, that doesn't mean that he's rude to people and doesn't care about them. He's not showing favoritism, right? He doesn't play favorites. You're going to be objective. You're going to shoot straight with us, right? Beware when people come. We know that what you're saying is true, but Jesus has his radar on, like, this is not going to be good. Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. We know you're going to tell us the truth on this one, Jesus. Here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay? Or shall we not pay? Very simple question. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, or some versions say a penny, that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now notice what Christ says. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him, as though this was a new thought. Christ was advocating a separation of church and state, right? Caesar has this stuff, it's imprinted on the money, give it back, right? God has this stuff. You obey Caesar as far as you can, right? But then there's the Lord. There's the law of the land. There's the law of the Lord. There's the church, and then there's the state. And Christ says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. 
You don't have to choose one between another. Apparently, they can operate concurrently, simultaneously, and ideally, harmoniously. Now, Paul taught the same thing, by the way. Go to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. Look at verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And we've seen this in Bible prophecy, yes? Even Babylon the Great, you know, and Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel said, God has given you a kingdom. He's allowing you to govern for this time. But after you, there's going to be another one and another one. God raises up. God can set down. He can rule in the affairs of men. But he allows humans to have their territorial influence and their governorship, their dominion for a time. Notice what he says. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. He's like, if you want to stay out of trouble with the law, keep the law. You know why you slam on your brakes when you see a cop on the road? Yeah, because you know what you've been doing, right? I've had that experience before. You have a totally different, let's say that it's a 45-mile-an-hour zone, and you pass by a police officer, and you're doing 60, versus you pass by the police officer, and you're doing 40. Does your reaction to seeing that police officer change? Absolutely. One, you're like, hello, Mr. Officer, good to see you. Hope you're having a good day. Do, 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 do. The other one, you're starting to get right with God, right? <laughs> Slam on the gray's brain. Oh, I'm sorry. There's sweat coming up, palpitations, your heart, your aneurysm, all the different things. It's the same road, the same cop, but your reaction to it is different, right? Paul makes a very simple statement. The Lord allows these governing bodies to be there, and if you want to be in peace with them, keep the law. Very simple. He goes on to say, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you, do be, if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Not just because you're afraid of the penalty, but because it's the right thing to do. God has allowed there's such a thing as a state, and you should be respectful to it. Therefore, again, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And notice what he ends with. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. He very clearly says, yes, God has allowed this to be the case, and therefore you should keep the law of the land at the same time you keep the law of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, the same Apostle Paul now. Keep going to the right in your scriptures. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes. 
after he just gives this whole screed about how we should be faithful and subject to the governing authorities, then Genzo's on to say in Philippians 3, verse 20, for our citizenship, where? Is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Am I a citizen of the United States of America? Yes. Am I a citizen of God's kingdom? Yes. All Christians are called to hold dual citizenship, right? We should be faithful to the laws of the land just because we're afraid of what they do to us when we break it, but beyond that, because it's the right thing to do. But primarily, our citizenship is in heaven. Those two things, according to Christ and according to Apostle Paul, should be able to operate together at the same time, concurrently, but still separate. See what I'm saying? That you should be able to be a faithful citizen of heaven and at the same time be a faithful citizen of your nation here on earth. Seems to be a biblical principle. That there can be two kingdoms, in fact, there should be two kingdoms, both of which Christ sets up. John chapter 18. Let me show you something fascinating here. If you study the life of Christ, you'll notice that Christ was continually making the religious leaders incredibly angry. They were incensed at him. They were offended at him. He put them in their place, and they did not like that. They were no fan of Christ, and they didn't want to see him just quiet. They wanted to see him dead. But what was the problem with the religious leaders at the time when they wanted to execute the death penalty? They had no legal authority to do it. They were just the church. For instance, if we wanted to, at this, if this local church, we wanted to execute church discipline and execute someone, could we do that? No, not without fearing the death penalty ourselves, right? We have no jurisdiction over taking life. We're simply a church. The state has that right. Now, the same thing existed in Christ's time. The church hated him told bad things about him, told people never to listen to him, tried to trick him, tried to do all this. But when it came time to kill him, they had to go ask permission from the state. They had to get the state on board. And what's really interesting, though Christ died on a Roman cross, he really didn't offend the Romans. He offended the Jews, but the Jews didn't have the the authority to execute the justice that they wanted to see happen, so they had the appeal to the state, please help us kill this man. Fascinating. John chapter 18. Watch this now. John chapter 18, starting with verse 28. What do we read? Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go to the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but they might eat the Passover. My word, the things they cared about. But anyway. Think about this. They're trying to kill their Messiah, but they wanted to stay ceremonially clean so they can go through the, the sacrificial service. Incredible. And, and on, on that thought, just for a second, don't ever, ever underestimate the power of sin to dull your sense of irony. Let me explain what I mean. When you talk about someone behind their back about how much of a gossip they are, you don't even realize you're doing the same thing. 
These people were saying, we must stay clean, so let's do our crime and wash our hands the correct way. They don't even realize what they're doing here, right? Watch this now. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now the church has already declared him, he should die. But now they're going to Pilate and Pilate says, I don't get it, what'd he do? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. (laughs) Basically their rule is, trust us, he's real, real bad, you should kill him. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to what? Your law. Were there two sets of laws? Yeah, there were church law and state law. Church said, bad, 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 bad. But before they could kill him, they had to go to the state. And the state said, what do we care? Who cares? You go judge him, you know, banish him, whatever it is you do, but don't appeal to, don't expect a Roman cross for that. But watch this. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not what? Lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, and are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Like, do you actually want to know? Are you just asking some questions somebody else fed you? Goes on to say, Pilate answered him saying, am I a Jew? This is a rhetorical question. What's the implied answer? No, I'm a Roman. I don't care who's the king of the Jews. As long as you're paying taxes to me, you can have whatever kings and whatever you want. I don't care. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? (laughs) And watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Notice he's saying there's a spiritual kingdom here. And I'm here subject to you, but there's another citizenship, right? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus said, Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no fault in him at all. Had he committed a Roman crime? No. The Roman governor said, he's innocent. But look what he does. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release the king of the Jews? Then they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a robber. Now watch this. Pilate clearly says there is nothing that he's done wrong that deserves a Roman death. No penalty at all, in fact. Even imprisonment. Nothing. But to curry the favor of the Jews... He compromises. 
because he wants to keep the Jewish nation stable and the tax. He doesn't want to revolt and yada, yada, yada. So to curry the favor of the religious group here, the state caves to do their will. And in so doing, they execute Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. The church needed the power of the state to enforce its decrees. Do you see that? Apparently, the same thing will happen to Christ's followers at the end. The church will make a decree, but it will need a state power to enforce it. So we go back to Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13. And while we sit there, I'm going to show you something, and we're going to be in our study guide as well. Themes that we've seen repeated, but I want to show you two more clearly now. Satan aims, we're in the little key called a counterfeit Christ. Remember we said that the Antichrist was not just an open opposer against Christ, but was trying to be a substitute for Christ, was to stand in the place of God, yes? Satan aims to be like whom? The Most High, according to his own confession. This is Romans, uh, Isaiah chapter 14. As God is represented on earth by Jesus Christ, Satan's representative on earth is the Antichrist. Now, how good of a job does he do in trying to counterfeit Christ? Let me show you something phenomenal. Christ's ministry, though his life began earlier on, his public ministry didn't begin until the age of 30. What event marked the beginning of Christ's Christ's ministry? That one doesn't count. You don't get bonus points for that. His baptism, right? That was the beginning of his ministry. We're going to go quickly through these. Mark chapter 1. Let me show you. Let me give you biblical basis, biblical foundation for every statement we're making here. Jesus' ministry began with his baptism. Mark chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice carefully what happens here. Jesus waits the proper time, because there was a time to begin his ministry, right? And at the proper time, he goes to the water and gets baptized. He goes down into the water and comes up out of the water. And God himself, from throne in heaven, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He represents me. Jesus would later say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I do nothing of myself. I get my authority from God in heaven, the Father. So here, Christ is inaugurated into his earthly ministry, representing Jesus Christ. He comes up out of the water and starts his ministry. Watch this now. That's step one. How long did his ministry last? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Or literal time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. 
What happened at the end of those three and a half years? He was crucified. He received a deadly wound. But on the third day, praise the Lord, what happened? The deadly wound was healed, and he resurrects. Now, once he leaves and goes back to heaven, does he have no more contact with the earth then? No. He has a representative in his place. Let me show you this. John chapter 16. Make sure that you see it's right there in your Bible too. John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting with verse 7. Jesus himself says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I do what? Go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It continues on. And when he has come, he will do what? Convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Then notice what he says in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Clearly he says, more stuff I could say, but my time has come and I have to go. So how were they ever going to learn those things that Jesus wanted to tell them and his time was up? Well, the Comforter will tell them, the Holy Spirit. Watch this now. However, verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, what? Authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now notice this. God the Father has a representative on earth, Jesus Christ. But after his three and a half years of ministry, his deadly wound, and when that wound was healed, he ascends into heaven, and in his place, he has someone working for him, namely the Holy Spirit, to lead all people to him. So the Spirit's job is to lead people to Jesus, and Jesus' job is to reconnect them to the Father. Yes? And of course, John chapter 12, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. But of course, he does it through the agency of the Holy Spirit, who convicts you of sin and leads you to Jesus. This is Christianity 101, yes? Let's review this. Jesus Christ begins his ministry right on time, as prophecy had foretold, by coming up out of the water, and God himself gives him his authority, said, this is my son, whom I am well pleased, he represents me on the earth. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I am his representative. Three and a half years his ministry lasts, at the end of which he receives a deadly wound, but that deadly wound was healed. He leaves, and in his place, another power comes to draw all people to Christ, to convict the whole world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And through all of this, of course, it's honoring and worshiping God. This is Jesus Christ's entire ministry. Now let's look at the counterfeit Jesus, the 
Antichrist. Look, we see in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, again, his, quote, ministry, if you want to use that word, began when he came up out of the water. Over and over, the most often repeated time prophecy in the Bible tells us how long this, if you can say, anti-ministry would last. 1,260 years, 42 months, or time, times, and half a time. Three and a half prophetic years. At the end of that 1,260 years, his three and a half years of prophetic time, this little horn, this antichrist power, received a deadly wound. Shortly after that, that wound was healed. And then we see in Revelation chapter 13 that he employs another power to do his bidding for him. He employs the power of a nation with lamb-like qualities to work on his behalf Not to convict the world, but to coerce the world. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 13 and see that right in our Bibles. Revelation 13. Again, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. You notice this is the great difference between the creator and the supplanting creation. The creator never causes anyone to worship. He convicts, he invites, he knocks on the door. But the character of this one is different. It's forcible, it's coercive. He makes everyone do it. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So while the Holy Spirit works by conviction, this false, or what the prophet would later say, the, uh, the, the false prophet, the false Holy Spirit, will do by coercion, would force all people to worship. And it promised, of course, to draw all people to himself after his deadly wound was healed. So let's identify tonight this Antichrist accomplice. First of all, we know that this second beast of Revelation 13, the beast that comes out of the earth instead of coming out of the sea like every other prophetic beast has done, every other kingdom has come out of the sea, this one comes out of the earth. That means that geographically, it comes from a relatively uninhabited land, a different location than the nations of divided Europe. Its rise to prominence would take place chronologically or in the flow of history during the time the Antichrist received its deadly wound in 1798. So you should be putting the pieces together in mind. Is there a geographically separate territory than the nations of Europe that was coming to world prominence 
coming into being around the time of the deadly wound in the late 1700s. That would be ruled concurrently by two separate Christ-like kingdoms. A church without a pope and a nation without a king. It would eventually become a superpower with global influence. The only power able to cause every nation to do anything. And eventually that power would be used like the dragon to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to to worship a revived Roman Catholic papacy. Friends, you already know what I'm going to say next. There is only one power on the planet that fulfills all these criteria that we see from the books of Daniel and Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 13, the beast from the earth. And that's whom? The United States of America. Now, I want to make this clear. I'm a huge fan of the United States of America. I praise God that we can be here tonight saying God's word in open air without any fear of state interference. Amen? Not everyone on this planet has that opportunity. It is a God-ordained, lamb-like privilege to have the freedom to worship as we see fit. But let me tell you something. According to Bible prophecy, that freedom is not forever. There will come a time, according to God's word, when this nation will enforce not its own inherent beliefs, but beliefs of a religious system that encourages it to act on its behalf, things that are contrary to the law of God in an effort to cause all nations to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now let's close with Revelation 13. What does he do? Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a what? Mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may be able to buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Which leads naturally into tomorrow night's presentation entitled, The Mark of the Beast. What is this mark of the beast? And what is this image to the beast that everyone's supposed to bow down and worship? What does that look like? How do we decode Bible symbols and see our place in Bible prophecy? You don't want to miss tomorrow night's The Mark of the Beast. Let me ask you a question. Was tonight clear? Can you please raise your hand? Raise God. Now let me ask you another question. Put your hand. Was tonight, did tonight include some information you had never heard before? Praise God. Are you going to need to go home and study it for yourself? Amen. As you should with every biblical presentation. Be good Bereans. Go home, receive the word with eagerness, then go home and study it for yourself and see that these things are true. You don't want to miss tomorrow night's The Mark of the Beast, but for tonight, thank you for being here. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the freedom to congregate in public without any fear of harassment, at least for the time being. 
Lord, help us to never take for granted this precious religious liberty that we have. But help us to use this time to not only ensure our own salvation by a close walk with Jesus, but also to bring the good news of the gospel message to those who have not yet heard. Lord, thank you for giving us Bible truth, and thank you for the promise that your coming is soon and very soon. We look forward to it, but Lord, we want to be ready. So let us be those faithful ones who will keep your commandments, who will be faithful to the law of the Lord, regardless of the law of the land, and that you will see in us the faith that would fit into heaven. For that, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's power to keep us faithful and to make us useful for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.